Open your Bibles to the book of Ephesians and the fourth chapter and the 17th verse. Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 17. If you're a Christian this morning, and whether you realize it or not, you are presently engaged in a very great struggle. A war for the control of your heart and your mind. This war has many fronts, and surprise attacks by the enemy are very common. In this war, there are no ceasefires, there are no lulls in the action. There is no possibility of a negotiated peace. It is a constant struggle. It is an intense hand-to-hand combat in which you are either killing your enemy or he is killing you. As we start together this morning, it's, I think, a good idea to dispense up front with the mistaken notion that the struggle I have just referred to is a result of two natures within us that are in a tug of war. As a Christian, you do not have two natures. You have one. As a Christian, united by faith to the Lord Jesus Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection, our sin nature has been slain. Our former attachment to Adam in the realm of sin and death has been severed. It has been put to death on the cross of Christ. And we are a new creation. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17 that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. I have been crucified with Christ, he says in Galatians 2.20. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. The intense struggle that you and I feel is not as a result of two natures warring within us. We have been severed from our sin nature. But although we have been separated from that old realm and its absolute power over us, we drag into the new realm the impulses, the habits, the tendencies of that old realm. Paul calls this the flesh. The flesh. 
Said another way, we are a new creation in Christ, but we still have residing sin. But we no longer have reigning sin, and that is an important distinction. Residing sin, yes. Reigning sin, no. No. Romans 6 and verse 14. For sin shall not be master over you. You are not under law, but under grace. It is the flesh that wages war against the spirit who is working in us to change us to transform our impulses our desires our habits our tendencies that they might be suited for the heavenly realm of which you and I are now citizens by virtue of our union with Christ we are forgiven children of God. Again, Galatians 5, and beginning in verse 16, Paul says, I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sends its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh, for these are in opposition to one another. This struggle, this intense warfare in which there is no ceasefire, no lull in the action, no negotiated peace, will continue with you and me as a child of God every single day for the rest of your life until the Lord takes you home. When he takes you home and grants you your glorified body, you will be free, but not until. When you receive that glorified body, the last vestiges of the struggle with sin will cease. But in the meantime, in the meantime, every single day, we must fight. We must fight. A former seminary professor of mine, by the name of Stuart Scott, in reflecting on this reality, said the battle between flesh and spirit will wear you out. And how right he is. It is tiring. To fight. And the more we resist, meaning the harder we fight, the more tiring it is. But nonetheless, we must fight. It's a real fight, a real struggle. It's a great struggle, but it's not a hopeless struggle. The fact the final outcome of the struggle has been assured to us in Christ. We must engage in the fight. 
Again, hear the words of the Apostle Paul in Philippians 2 and beginning in verse 12. He says, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Victory is assured. But we must engage in the fight. And that takes us to this section of Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus. Verses 17 through 24. We began it last week under the title of a Christian battle plan. A Christian battle plan. And what we noted last week is that God gives us in these verses a six-part battle plan for waging a successful war against sin. A six-part battle plan. Last week, we looked at the first and second part of that plan. This week, we'll look at the third and the fourth, and then next week, we will finish. But to remind you of what we looked at last week, the first part of this battle plan in order to wage the successful battle is, number one, to reaffirm your commitment to Christ. To reaffirm your commitment to Christ. Verse 17. So this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer as the Gentiles also walk. Paul is writing to them here, and he is saying to them, by command, that their attitudes and their conduct must be sharply different from the unconverted around them, the pagans that surround them. And he bases this command upon the very authority of Christ. Where he says, so I say, and here translated affirm, and it could easily be insist together with Christ. That you do not live like the unconverted. Those living under the lordship of Jesus Christ must live differently from those who refuse his lordship. It needs to be real and it needs to be evident. And it has everything to do, everything to do with the way we think, first and foremost. And the way we think will produce the change that is deep down and lasting with regard to our own ethic, the Christian ethic. It begins in the heart and mind. We noted last time the repetitive use of the word and, the, and related words with regard to thinking. And its impact. It's essential. We understand and submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And as we formulate our Christian battle plan, beloved, it's time we reaffirm that commitment. Not just today, but every day. Get yourself out of bed in the morning and say to yourself, Jesus is Lord. And I want to live my life accordingly. The second part of the battle plan that we looked at last week 
was verses, the second half of verse 17 through verse 19. And it was that we must recognize the destructiveness of sin. First, reaffirm your commitment to Christ. Second, recognize the destructiveness of sin. Walk no longer as the Gentiles walk, he says, in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. In very, very stark terms, Paul lays out the life of those without Christ. This is not true, of course, of every single person to the to the fullest extent possible, but it is true in principle of all. A life without Christ is a life that is mentally ruined. Ungodly in their thinking, which results in being ungodly in their lifestyle. Paul arranges a four-point indictment here. He says they are futile. They are darkened. They are lifeless. And they are greedy in their pursuit of pleasure. They have lost touch with reality. Because reality comes from God, is defined by God, and they, are, they have lost touch with him. And they are driven by their passions, which renders their lives ultimately meaningless and recklessly bound for destruction. This is the life of those outside of Christ. And Paul says for the Christian, we must be different. We must be different. And if we are to effectively battle sin, we've got to recognize how destructive it really is. It is deadly. That takes us to the third phase of the battle plan. The third phase in verses 20 and 21. Remember who you have been taught. Reaffirm your commitment to Christ. Recognize the destructiveness of sin and remember who you have been taught. Verse 20. But you did not learn Christ in this way. If indeed you have heard him, And have been taught in him just as truth is in Jesus. Notice the sharp contrast. In the Greek, the the pronoun is brought to the front of the sentence for emphasis. But you, those outside of Christ, given over to futility and darkness, the greedy pursuit of sin and its ultimate destruction, but you, but you, 
In contrast to that destructiveness of mind, sold into bondage to sin, you are different. And your difference is that you have come to know Christ. You have come to know Christ. Paul uses here in verses 20-21 three parallel expressions to, to describe the transformation that has occurred. If you are a child of God this morning, there has been a profound transformation that has occurred. And he describes it here in in three expressions, and they're somewhat parallel in nature. And the first of them is, you have learned Christ. Verse 20. There he puts it in the the opposite, in in the negative, but you did not learn Christ in this way. In other words, you have learned Christ. Now, notice he doesn't say you've learned about Christ, but that you have learned Christ. In other words, it's not just content. It's a personal relationship. And that's huge. That is huge. In fact, the very verb here, translated learned, Manthano is the, is the verb. It, it refers not only to head knowledge, but also to relational knowledge. You have learned Christ in a, not just information about him, but you have, you have been related to him. Paul's saying this, when you hear the gospel and respond in faith, you, you are put in touch with a person. You are brought to a person. In other words, these Ephesian believers, when they encountered the gospel of Jesus Christ, it was a relational encounter with Christ himself. If you are here this morning without Jesus Christ, as we have sung and as we preach the scriptures here, you are being brought face to face with a person. And the question is, what will you do with him? Will you receive him or will you reject him? This learning of Christ doesn't occur just at conversion, although it is certainly the the, the significant transformation that occurs, but there's an ongoing aspect to it. In other words, as you are daily exposed to Christ through his scriptures, through his people, and through the gifted teachers that God has raised up within his church, you are growing in Christ. That relationship is growing and deepening. It is this idea of relationship, by the way, that sets Christianity apart from all else. As one author writes, this is in contrast to many religions whereby followers may continue to study about their chosen religion but never experience an intimate knowledge of their leader and or founder of their religion. It's very true. 
Very, very true. Think about Islam with me for a moment. A Muslim may spend their life studying the Quran, but they do not grow intimate with Muhammad or Allah, for that matter. As you study the scriptures, as you hear the scriptures preached, as you read the word of God yourself, you grow in intimacy with the God of the universe. We have learned Christ, Paul says. Secondly, they have heard Christ. Verse 21, if indeed you have heard him. They have learned him, they have heard him. Now, they have not personally encountered Jesus in the sense that as he walked the earth. So they did not hear him. He never spoke to them. He never appeared to them. So we we need to understand what Paul is saying here. When they have heard Christ, we need to understand it is as they have heard the teaching of the apostles, they have heard Christ. In other words, when the apostles spoke under inspiration of the Spirit of God and and taught the believers, and by extension through their word to us, as they teach us, we hear Christ. We hear Christ. The apostles were very self-conscious of this reality. The apostle Paul in 1 Thessalonians 2 and verse 13 Writing to the church there in Thessalonica, he says, For this reason we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. When Paul came to Thessalonica and preached the gospel to them, They heard God. They heard Christ. As you read the word of God, you are hearing Christ. As the word of God is preached to you, accurately, authentically, you too, in that, hear Christ. Christ is speaking this morning. Through his word, we must hear his voice. And finally, Paul says, they have been taught in Christ, verse 21. They have been taught in him, just as the truth is in Jesus. Christ is the sphere in which they have been taught. In other words, they have been taught in communion or in connection with Christ. This communion is a communion or a connection that was first enjoyed by the apostles and is made available to us as we receive their witness by faith. John writes in 1 John in chapter 1 and verse 3, What we have seen... And heard, we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us. 
And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. In other words, the apostles say we are in fellowship or communion with Christ. And you join us in that communion as you receive our witness of Christ. Again, for these Ephesian believers, and by extension, for you and I. We hear Christ. We commune with Christ as we meet him in his word. As we meet him in his word. Formerly, these Ephesian believers have been chasing after all kinds of relationships, none of which could satisfy And in fact, relationship that had led them deeper and deeper into darkness and destruction. But that all changed. It all changed when they came into a personal encounter with Christ through the teaching of the apostles. And the same is true for you and I. Once I was in darkness and futility of my mind, and Christ appeared to me in the preaching of the gospel and the scales came from my eyes and I saw and I heard and I believed. And I have been in relationship, an intimate, growing relationship with Jesus Christ for nearly 40 years. My testimony is not unique. The circumstances perhaps The time frames, perhaps. But if you're a child of God this morning, that's your testimony too. That you are in relationship with the living God. An intimate relationship. An intimate relationship. Beloved, this step of the battle plan is crucial. It is absolutely crucial because it is the only basis for lasting moral change. Anything attempted outside of an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ becomes just moral reformation. And the flesh can restrain the flesh for only so long. For only so long. Justice is the truth is in Jesus, Paul says in verse 21. Truth comes to you in a person. Did you ever think about that? Truth comes to you in a person. That person is Jesus Christ, and you come to that truth as you come into a personal relationship with him. He said himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. But by me. To have a personal, intimate relationship with Jesus Christ is to have the truth. To be outside of it is darkness, hopelessness, and moral and spiritual ruin. Remember who you have been taught. Paul goes on here and talks about content. That content is outlined for us in verses 22, 23, and 24. 
And in a nutshell, it's basically this, that a a significant fundamental break has occurred when we came into union with Jesus Christ. He's going to use the language here of putting off and putting on to speak of this fundamental transformation that has occurred. And in light of that, it takes us to to the fourth element of the battle plan this morning. The fourth element of the battle plan in verse 22. That in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside or put off the old self, the old man, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit. The picture Paul paints for us here is of taking off a coat and laying it aside. Paul refers to this, using this picture, this illustration, and he commands them here to to take off the coat, to take off the old self, the old man, their, their former manner of life. You see it? That in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self. What is the old self? It is your former manner of life. Specifically, it's the thinking, it's the conduct, it's the behaviors that characterized their life and your life before you came to know Jesus Christ. Chapter 2, verse 3, referring to the same things, Paul calls them the desires of the flesh. The desires of the flesh. And notice he says that this old self is being corrupted in accordance to the lusts of deceit. In other words, it's growing more and more corrupt according to the lusts of deceit. In other words, the, the, the lusts that are generated by deceit. What is the source of lusts? It is lies. It is self-deception. which eventuates in practicing deception with others. Take it off, he says. Put it aside. It's no longer yours. Beloved, that old self is rotten. It's decaying. It's the putrefying remnant of our former life without Christ. Listen, you are either moving to Christ or away from Christ. And to move away from Christ is to move away from life. And when one moves away from life, one moves closer to death. That old life is a stinking, filthy mess. And Paul says, don't carry it around with you. Don't wear it like a cloak. Don't be contaminated by contact with it. Put it off. Put it off. Now, this is hard to hear. It is hard to hear. It's hard to receive as truth. We don't like to think about the old life that way. I mean, I'm not that bad, am I? 
We need the word of God to to have an accurate picture of ourselves. Think with me. What were or are the old habits that belong to your former life without Christ? What was it like? What was it like? Paul lists a few possibilities for us here, beginning in verse 25. Stimulate our thinking, perhaps. Verse 25, lying. Lying. Verse 26, anger. Anger. Verse 28, Stealing, theft. Verse 29, ugly words. Verse 31, bitterness, wrath, clamor, slander. Verse 32, hard-heartedness. Chapter 5, verse 3, immorality. Verse 4, dirty jokes and sexual innuendos. This is but a representative list. Of that old man, that life before Christ. And Paul says, put it off. Put it off. How do we do it? The basis for relinquishing these old habits is faith. Is faith. It's, it's faith in the fact that they no longer dominate you and control you. Residing sin, yes. Reigning sin, no. Romans 6, verses 6 and 7. Paul says, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with. So that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. If you have been united with Christ this morning by faith. And you are united in his death, burial and resurrection. And that means you have died to sin. It is no longer your master. It is no longer your master. Is it strong? Yes. Is it wily? Yes. Is it constantly at work to trip us up? Yes. But it no longer controls us. When you became united to Christ by faith, 
You were transferred from the old realm. Your union with Adam in sin and death. And you were transferred to the new realm of Christ, the realm of grace and life. People ask me, can you lose your salvation? No. No. How can one go backwards? The turnstile goes in one direction. You have been severed from the old man. It is died and you are now alive in Christ. You are new. You are new. It's a one-way trip. A one-way trip. But the pull of the old life is strong, eh? It is strong. And it relies on deceit. As Paul says here, right? It's been corrupted according to the lusts of deceit. The old man relies on deceit to convince us. To convince us that that we can still participate in the old way. Just not as fully as before. Or it deceives us and and tries to convince us that that the old way still has an iron grip on us. And that we must obey. But it's a lie. It's a deception. It needs to be fought with truth. It needs to be fought with truth. The great English theologian John Owen writes in his book on sin that the basis for the efficacy of deceit is its effect upon the mind. In other words, the deceit only works, only is powerful because of its effect upon our minds. Sin deceives the mind. When sin attempts to enter into the soul by some other way, such as by the affections, the mind checks and controls it. But when deceit influences the mind, the chance of sinning multiplies. That's why Paul says in Romans chapter 12, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. When your mind is under the lordship of Christ, Gentlemen, the images will not lodge. The lusts that appeal to your affections will be turned away. But when your mind is not stayed on Christ, you have opened a wide avenue into your heart. We must control our thinking. And we control it through the word of God. This is why the New Testament repeatedly warns. It repeatedly warns the church about being deceived. About the consequences of sin. 
It wouldn't be necessary to repeatedly warn us about being deceived if we weren't susceptible to being, what? Deceived. Deceived. And so we find Paul's words, for example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Beginning in verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. Do not be deceived. Those that engage in those behaviors will not inherit the kingdom of God regardless of what they might profess. Chapter 15 and verse 33. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Hey, I'm a Christian. I can kind of, you know, hang with the crowd. I can be cool at school with the friends. I don't have to stand apart. Do not be deceived. You will not pull them up. They will pull you down. We used to tell our children, imagine yourself on a table, locked arms with a friend. You're trying to pull him up onto the table. He is trying to pull you down onto the floor. Who do you think will win? Do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. Galatians chapter 6. Verse 7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. It matters. It matters. And one more, James chapter 1, beginning in verse 13, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. 
For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. If you fixate on the lure, you will swallow the hook. If you fixate on the lure, you will swallow the hook. Don't be deceived. You cannot dabble and play around the edges. This fourth part of the battle plan, this relinquishing of our old habits, it builds upon the others. It must have the others in place first. But this one is critical. We've got to get a handle on this. Got to get a handle on it. Or we will fall, you know, find ourselves falling prey over and over again to the same deeds of darkness. And beloved, these things must not be. They must not be. May God give us his grace through the gospel to hear and to heed his word. Let's pray. Now, Lord, serious message, serious words, not light, not full of good humor. Because sin is a serious thing. And all around us, this world takes it so lightly. Jokes about it. Plays with it. Revels in it. We confess that far too many times we have not taken it seriously enough either. Far too many times we've adopted an attitude of we're saved. We've got our fire insurance. So how we're living day to day, the decisions we're making, the places we're going, the things that we're watching and absorbing and the decisions we make don't have eternal consequences. But they do. Oh, Lord, thank you that we have been set free from the bondage of sin through Christ Jesus, our Lord. Thank you, our Father, that that sin doesn't have to dominate us, and indeed, it doesn't dominate us. Oh, Lord, we can remember those times when we were driven by sin. What a horrible memory. You've set us free. But Father, you've set us free into a struggle. And we don't for sure understand the hows and the whys and have to confess we would like to to be done with it. Or it does tire us out. 
And at times it discourages us. And it's those times when we're tired and discouraged that, that we need a fresh glimpse of the reality that our victory is in Christ and it's assured and that the power lies in the gospel as we, as we remind ourselves of it, as we believe it again, as we draw close to Christ in personal intimacy. We find there the strength to go on, the strength to have victory. Our Father, how we thank you that the sins that once tripped us up, that we can look back on and that their grip upon us is not as strong as it once was. Some even banished. Father, we need to be refreshed for the fight. So may your spirit refresh us this morning with these truths. And we will pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus, and bring an end to the fight. Amen and amen.